Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16. The Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, we are in the middle of a series where we are working through our church covenants, which, as Andy explained, is what our members commit to and what it explains what, it, what we're about as a church. And it talks about our different responsibilities in different areas of our life together. And we talk about different responsibilities both uh, personally and as a church. And this morning we come uh, to this key question of what is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the local church. Now, I guess we're pretty aware that many businesses will have a mission statement, and organizations do the same, to describe what they are all about. And I wonder if you recognize any of these mission statements. Which company says, we aim to be the Earth's most consumer-centric company? Anyone know? Okay, it's Amazon. That's the Amazon mission statement. Or perhaps you come across this one, to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. What do you think? Nike, Nike, yeah, or Nike, however you pronounce it, yeah. Maybe uh, this one, to be one of the world's leading producers and providers of entertainment and information. What do you think? Surely that must be Disney. It is. Leading entertainment and information. And then... To accelerate this, the world's transition to sustainable energy. Now, this one might get you. Tesla. There you go. Yeah. Well, those are mission statements of different organizations and businesses. And uh, I'm sure the management teams of those organizations spent many hours trying to put together those catchy statements of purpose that describe what they're all about. And this morning, uh, we're going to ask what the mission of the church is. Now, that's a really important question. It's, it's a key issue because there are lots and lots of different ideas out there as to what the church should be all about. And people have all kinds of ideas and about different purposes for the Lord's people. And that's a key thing. And, and I think there's a, a good reason why we might have lots of different ideas about what the church might be about, because... For many, the calling of the church is seen to be just the sum of all our individual callings as Christians. And if that's the case, then if you think about it, the mission of the church suddenly becomes really big, doesn't it? Because it becomes the sum total of all our individual callings and responsibilities. But um, that isn't uh, what God says the mission of the church should be. And in fact, as we look at the scriptures, and we're going to do that in a second, we find that, that whilst we all have right and good individual callings as Christians, 
the Lord God gives a very specific calling to his church. Gives a very specific focus for our life together as the Lord's people. And we're going to look at that as we look at one of the, well, look at three great statements of purpose for the church. Now, Andy read one of them, and we'll come to them in a second. That's in Matthew 28, and we probably know it as the Great Commission. But actually, as we go through the scriptures, there are at least three we might call Great Commission statements. There's one in Matthew, there's one in Luke, and there's one in Acts. And with God's help this morning, we're going to work through each of those three commission statements. And as we do that, we're going to see the Lord gives a very specific purpose and calling for the church. We'll try to summarize that together, and then we're going to draw out six implications for our life together. So normally, uh, a sermon, as uh, James was telling us, uh, might have one passage we look at. We're going to try and look at three, very briefly. Then we're going to try and summarize the teaching of those three into one central statement of purpose for the church. And then we're going to work out implications of what that means for our life together. So that's where we're going. And we're going to do that because of what our church covenant calls us to do. And, and as the, the believers came together at Emmanuel Church to bring together that church covenant, there was that recognition that there was a specific purpose and calling for the church and Andy read it for us earlier, but let's remind ourselves, remind ourselves of it again, because it says we recognize the extraordinary privilege we enjoy in knowing Christ and being saved by grace alone. We acknowledge our obligation to make Christ known to those around us locally, nationally, and to the ends of the earth, making disciples of all nations and baptizing them into his name. So why is that statement about the purpose of what we're about as a church so very, very important? Well, let's turn first of all uh, to Matthew 28, and we're going to look at verses 18 to 20. Please have your Bibles open. It's not going to be on the screens, but it was their part of the reading. Matthew 28, we're going to look at verses 18 to 20, which is the passage that Andy read earlier. Now, as we come to this passage, there are a number of things that make it a very significant passage. It's a significant passage because it comes at a very significant moment. It comes right at the end of Matthew's gospel. And so these are the final words that Matthew chooses to record Jesus spoke. And they sum up both what Jesus came to do and his purpose for his people. So the timing at the end of Matthew's gospel makes this a significant passage. But also you'll notice it, it comes and happens in a very significant place. We began in verse 16 in the reading to notice that Jesus told the disciples to go to a mountain to receive this commission. Now, as we go through the scriptures, we find that God loves to do significant things on mountains. If we think of the law as it was given to Moses, where was it given? On a mountain. As we think of the transfiguration when Jesus revealed his glory, where was he? He was on a mountain. And so this is a significant place in its location because Jesus reveals his commission on a mountain. It's a significant moment. It's a significant place. Perhaps most importantly, these words are spoken by the most significant person. Because look down at verse 18 as Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
A key theme in Matthew's gospel is that Christ is the king of the universe. He is God's divine son who has been set up to rule over the nations. And his kingly rule has begun through his death and resurrection. And so Christ speaks these words as king, the one who has all authority. And what does he tell us to do in a significant moment, in a significant place, spoken by the most significant person? Well, if we look at verse 19 and 20, there we have the core of what he calls us to do. If we analyze the language here, there is one main command. It is to make disciples of all nations. That's the big command. And then we're told how to do that. There are three things we are to do as we go and make disciples of all nations. We are to go. That's the first thing Jesus says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, that's significant because there is a change of direction in Jesus' words here. If we, if we think of how the disciples had been operating as Jesus' followers to this point, what have they been doing? They've been going to say to people, come and see the Lord Jesus. They've been calling them to come to Christ. But what happens here is that Jesus tells them to go and to tell something. They're entrusted with a message to share about Christ that all people need to hear. So there was a change of direction from come and see to go and tell. And then there is a a widening of the scope because Christ sends them into all the world in saying go. To this point, Jesus' ministry has been geographically focused upon Israel. But now this changes as he sends his followers out to share his message. So he calls them to go and to go into all the world. And then notice the second thing we do is we make disciples. We go and then we baptize there in the middle of verse 19. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who, having come to faith in Christ, obeys the command of Christ to be baptized into the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we make disciples through as they believe and are baptized. And then verse 20, we teach obedience. A disciple is someone who seeks to live all of their life in obedience to the commandments of God. So Christ here gives one main command, it is to make disciples. And he tells us three things we do to accomplish that command. We go to all the nations. We baptize, calling to faith and repentance, and then baptism. And we teach obedience. We teach the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we go with a precious promise, end of verse 20, that Jesus promises he will be with us to the end of the age. Now that's Matthew's commission. Or what about Luke's commission? This is the second one we're going to turn to. And that comes in a similar way right at the end of Luke's gospel. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And we're going to read verses 44 to 49. So again, right at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke, having spoken of the life of Christ, then takes us to this similar great commission. But it tells us some new things. Because we read there in verse 44, Jesus said to them, This is what I have told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. 
He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So that's Luke's commission. As we read that, we notice there are many similarities with what we read in Matthew. And we're not going to focus on the similarities. We're going to focus on what Luke adds here to enrich our understanding. Because notice that Luke adds a further motivation for this mission of the church. It's there in verse 45 that Christ has opened their minds so they can understand the Scriptures. So the first followers of Jesus and all followers of Jesus now are those who have seen that Jesus is a promised Messiah whom God spoke about in Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So our motivation to follow this commission is that God has opened our minds to his truth. Notice also that there is, we're told, the content of the message that we are to carry to the ends of the earth. Verse 47. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins sums up the message we're about. We're about declaring that there is one God who has made us, who is great and glorious and holy. And we are accountable to this one true and living God. It reminds us that we have all sinned before this holy God. And so we are under his just judgment. It reminds us that Christ has come so that through his death on the cross, forgiveness of sins can be offered to all who believe. And we are called there, crucially, to a personal response, to repent of our sin and to believe in the one who has died for our sins so that we can know peace with God. So Luke here gives us the message that we are to bear. But then notice, there at the end of that commission in Luke, Jesus leaves the disciples with an unanswered question. He says there, I'm going to send you what my father has promised but he doesn't tell us what that is. He also tells us that we will be clothed with power on high, but he doesn't tell us how. Which brings us to our third passage. And the third big commission is found in the book of Acts, the start of the book of Acts. And if you turn with me now to Acts chapter 1, we're going to read together Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And so those commissions come right at the end of the account of Jesus' life. The book of Acts is the account of the life of the early church, and it shows us what they did in response. But it begins with Jesus' commission as well. And here in Acts chapter 1, we read these words. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote down all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times, the dates the Father has sent, set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So once again, we notice a similarity, isn't there, with what we see in Matthew and in Luke. But what is added here? What is given to enrich further our understanding of our commission? Well, there's a third motivation for us to go. If the the motivation in Matthew is that Christ is king over all, if the motivation in Luke is that the, the Lord Jesus has opened their eyes so that they want to share it with others, the motivation in Acts is there in verse 3, that Christ is alive and the living Christ sends his disciples with this message. Isn't that a great thing to remember? If you think of every other major world religion, the founding leader is dead and gone. But the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. And added to that, in that motivation of a living saviour, we find the key So the unanswered question there in Matthew about how the Lord Jesus will be with them and in Luke about who will be sent so that they have power. And it's there in verse 8 because we're told the Holy Spirit will be given to every believer to enable them to fulfill this calling to make Christ known. And the wonderful thing about the book of Acts is that having heard that commission, then you find the church obeying that commission. Because as you read through the chapters again and again, you find them going out into the world with Christ's message. You find them calling people to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. You find the early church baptizing those who believe and establishing churches and so that disciples of Christ could be taught to obey the Lord Jesus in all of their lives. So in those three commissions, in Matthew and in Luke and in Acts, Jesus is giving us the mission for the church. And it's very specific, but it's huge in its scope, isn't it? Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert bring together the teaching of those three passages about the mission of the church into the following statement that defines what we're about. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commandments now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. Now I know that I tend to speak and write in long sentences. But even for me that's a long sentence. So let's try and summarize God's mission for his church as we ask six questions. Who sets the mission? Well it's the Lord Jesus Christ who sets the mission as the one who has authority over his church. 
Why do we go on that mission? What's the motivation? We've seen three. Because Christ is king and this is his universe, he sends us. Because Christ has opened our eyes to see who he is and that's a privilege we want to share about him. And because we know that he is a risen living saviour, he is not dead, he is alive, we go. That's the motivation for the mission. Well, what do we do to fulfill that mission? Well, we preach and we teach and we announce and we testify to the life, death, resurrection and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call all people to respond in repentance and faith and then we teach all to obey what Christ has commanded. Where do we go with this great message? Well, we go into all the world. We don't wait for people to come. We go and we tell. And we go with boldness because Christ sends us. And we go to all nations. We begin locally. But we think nationally. And we think internationally. That's where we go. How then do we go on this mission? Well, we go with confidence in the power of the Spirit who enables our mission. And when do we go? Well, we don't need to wait as the disciples need to wait, because the Spirit has now been given to every believer, and so we go now. And we go with confidence that Jesus is with us, and we keep going until the end of the age. Friends, that's the mission of the church. Someone has summarized it to say the mission of the church is the Great Commission. And now what I want us to do, having worked through those three key commissioning passages and summarized what they bring together for us, I want us to turn to six specific implications for our life together as the Lord's people. And the first is this, that gospel proclamation and the teaching of the word is central to our mission as a church. There are many other organizations that will do great good in our world. Some will be run as Christian organizations, others won't be. And many of them will do lots of things better than we can do them as a church. And what we have to remember is that the one organization, the one body that God has established to proclaim his truth is the church. And so proclaiming that truth must be central to who we are and what we do. Because if we fail to do that and we cease to do that, we are failing in the mission that God has given to us. Now that that doesn't mean that it's wrong for churches to run schools, as some do, or wrong for churches to set set up things like food banks, as some do as well. Those might be helpful things to do in your own local context. But it does mean that our central calling is to share the message of the gospel. There are many other things that we could do, but the Great Commission makes it clear what we must do. Let's put it like this. What do we desire to be known for as a church? There are many things we long to be as a church, but our greatest desire should that be, we would be known to be somewhere where people can come to know more about Christ. Where God's word is shared with love and clarity so that we make Jesus known. 
So let us have that centrality of teaching God's truth and declaring God's word. But then let's also remember that the gospel message is a message that we share through words. We live in days where there is confusion between how the message we share and our lives that we live interact. And our lives should commend the gospel. Our actions of love for our neighbor and love for each other will show the transforming power of Christ in our lives. And we'll come to that in future weeks as we look at how loving God, loving our neighbor, and loving each other are vital. And we speak about that in our membership covenants. But we need to be especially clear that in the days in which we live, that life lived doesn't communicate the gospel. Words communicate the gospel. In Acts and in Luke, Jesus calls us witnesses. And a witness is someone who bears a verbal testimony. Our lives commend the gospel, but our lives can't teach about repentance and belief in Christ. Living a godly, other-centered life is a great thing, but it will not bring that message of salvation to someone who just sees it. They need to hear it. Just love isn't enough because the gospel message is a message that requires words, words that call people to repentance and words that speak of how Christ can forgive sins. So let's see that the gospel message requires us to speak words. But then thirdly, let's see that the local church is key to this mission. As we think about this calling to go and to share God's word, the local church is key to that. Now, now there have been times when the church has forgotten this calling. Maybe you've heard the story of, of William Carey, who was the father of the modern missions movement, and he felt this great burden to go and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what he did was the first thing he did is, well, well, churches need to do that, and he went to a meeting of local church leaders He shared this huge burden to make Jesus known. And to those shame, those leaders told Carey that if God wanted to save people from the ends of the earth, he would do it without Carey's help. Now that response was a sinful neglect of this mission. But bad examples don't mean we should abandon what is Christ's pattern. And the local church is key to the mission. We see that in the book of Acts. When the first Christians went about fulfilling this commission, they did that by going out as missionaries and then planting churches. So Paul and Barnabas go to different places and they speak about Christ. People come as God works to saving faith in Christ. Then they establish churches in those places. Then they move on to new places and do the same thing again and again. This commission we've seen includes a call to baptized, which means the church must be central. A few weeks ago, James took us through the Bible's teaching on baptism, where we saw how baptism is a means by which we publicly declare our faith in Christ and are then brought into the local church. So baptism is a churchly thing, and so this commission can't be fulfilled without the local church. And then discipleship happens most naturally in the life of the local church. That's how we learn to live the Christian life as we watch others live it out and as we teach one another to obey Christ's commandments. 
So the local church is key to this mission. Now that doesn't mean there is no place for parachurch evangelistic ministries. I'm involved in a number myself. But it does mean the church is central to this role of mission. But it also means, fourthly, therefore, that church planting is key to this mission. The pattern in the early church is that they plant churches. They send missionaries who do evangelism, and as people come to faith, they establish churches. And they do that because they know that evangelism, baptism, and discipleship are all the calling of the local church. So church planting is part of this. Now, as a church family, we've had the privilege of working together with Mighton Church to plant Kenilworth Community Church. And we pray the Lord might lead and enable us to plant churches in the future, particularly in light of the lack of gospel churches in so many communities in our area of the country. So church planting is vital. But then also, we need a big view of mission. Because in all that we've said about the place of the local church in evangelism, we must not think that our horizon is just local. Jesus speaks of going to all nations in Matthew and Luke. And he sends his followers to the ends of the earth. And our church covenant reminds us of that calling to go to all the ends of the earth by speaking of local, national, and ends of earth mission. Now that's important because sometimes pressing local needs can make us forget the bigger picture. But we need to keep on remembering the bigger picture. That's why we're thankful for a missions team who help us to know about and pray for and support missionaries connected to Emmanuel who are serving overseas. And it's great to support those who are commended to us by other churches. But friends, shouldn't we also be praying that God might raise up missionaries from Emmanuel whom we can send to go? Who might feel that calling to national mission? Who might feel that calling to international mission? Because it's a worldwide mission. But then sixthly, we can have great courage as we go about this mission. You know, when it comes to evangelism, there is a danger that we can always feel like we're in retreat because the devil wants to put our heads down and to keep our mouths closed. But as we close, I want us to see three great reasons for courage as we go about this calling of our mission. And the first is this that the king sends us into his world. We are not going out into enemy territory. We are going out into the Savior's world because he has all authority. That is what Jesus declared, didn't he, in Matthew 28. He said, all authority in on heaven and earth has been given to me. And that thought that Christ rules and reigns over all things, that it's his world's, should give us great courage. You know, one area of evangelism I used to really struggle with was door-to-door evangelism. We call it the invitation team. And the reason I struggled with it was that I didn't like people knocking on my door. And I thought, that's intrusive. This is my home. 
Why are you knocking on my door to try and sell me something or tell you about me about your religious beliefs? And I thought, well, how can I go and stand on somebody else's doorstep and knock on their door if I'm not happy for them to do that for me? But that was wrong. Do you know why, friends? Christ is king. Christ is king. This is his world. We breathe his air. He owns every doorstep. Every bell we ring is his bell. And I want to be kind and I want to be gentle, but I shouldn't be apologetic about going to make him known because he's king. It's his universe. And God's challenged me in that. Maybe that's a challenge for you as well. It's his world. We should have courage to speak of him in his world. But also, secondly, the second reason for courage is his victory is already accomplished. A mistake we can have in our minds as we think about evangelism is we think we have to gain the victory for Christ. But we don't. We don't. He is already king. We don't go to claim the victory or make a victory. We go to announce a victory that has happened. And we do everything we can to share that message well But ultimately, the victory is achieved at the cross, and it doesn't therefore depend on us. And so I think, well, what do I do if I don't know what to say? Well, that's okay, because he is king and he has victory. If I'm a believer and I know the gospel, then I can announce that news in a personal way. I don't have to win the argument. I just have to declare who Christ is and what he came to do. The victory is already accomplished. But then thirdly and finally, he equips us for this task. Reaching out in our country is hard. And if you don't know evangelism recently, you'll know that. And it's significant that most of the unreached people groups around the world are unreached now for one very good reason because they're hostile to outsiders and it's dangerous to go there. So it's hard to go. And that's what makes the promise there at the end of Matthew 28 so very precious. Because Jesus says, surely I am with you even to the end of the age. And that's what makes the promise there at the end of Luke 24 especially precious. Because Jesus' promises will be clothed with power from on high. And that's what makes the promise there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 especially precious that Jesus says we'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on us and we will be his witnesses. Because it means that Christ is with us and Christ gives us power. He enables our witness so that however weak I feel myself, I don't need to fear because he's with me, he will go with me, and he will give me strength. In 1933, when America was in the middle of the Great Depression and theological error was a huge problem in the church, in light of all the needs around them and all the needs within the church, many people are asking, What is the responsibility and mission of the church in these days? A Bible teacher called J. Gresham Machen 
answered the question as follows. And I'm going to read his answer from 1933. He said these words. The responsibility, the mission of the church in the new age is the same as its responsibility in every age. It is to testify that this world is lost in sin. That the span of human life, no, all the length of human history, is an infinitesimal island in the awful depths of eternity. That there is a mysterious, holy, living God, creator of all, upholder of all, infinitely beyond all. That he has revealed us to himself in his word and offered us communion with himself through Jesus Christ the Lord. That there is no other salvation for individuals or for nations save this and that this salvation is full and free. And that whoever possesses it has for himself and for all others to whom he may be the instrument of bringing it, a treasure compared with which all the kingdoms of earth, no, all the wonders of the starry heavens are as a dust on the street. An unpopular message it is, an impractical message we are told, but it is the message that God has entrusted to his church. Neglect it, and you will have destruction. Heed it, and you will have life. May God give us grace to serve Christ in fulfilling that mission. Amen.